holiday, and I love it. I, I was looking at this text, and I was just thinking to myself, man, I really need a good hour and a half to preach this. So I told the band they could only do one song, and we're, I'm just kidding. Uh, you probably, my mic is not on. He texted me to tell me that. <laughs> Did that do it? Is it on now? Cool. Everyone at home was like, oh, there he is. He exists. <laughs> All right. The Holy Spirit is here, guys. Uh, you can tell uh, we're doing our gathering a little different today. I wanted to, uh, add, honestly, as I was praying over this text, the big thing I kept coming back to is just, man, I feel like there is such a beautiful and clear gospel invitation in this text. And by the way, it's, it's a long one. It's, it's a doozy. My goal is actually to speak less than I normally speak. And the reason for that is, is simple enough. I find that most of the time, the longer the text, the more it just speaks for itself and the less, uh, the less it needs me to clutter it uh, between, between your heart. And so um, I'm really stoked for this afternoon because I want to jump into this and I want us to just, just marinate in the bluntness and the intensity and also the beauty of the gospel invitation. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles over to Acts chapter 7. And guys, I realized, right, that we just, we just got straight into this. And some of you guys are like, look, I literally walked in the building like four minutes ago. Like, I'm not in a place, I'm not like ready emotionally, mentally to go deep yet. Like, my phone isn't even on airplane mode right now. I get that. I get that a lot of times our, our time in song kind of helps us slow down and reflect and, and kind of prepare ourselves for the time in the Word. So it's cool you're still a little antsy, I'm, I'm there with you. Let's, let's pray real quick, and then let's jump into this, because I am, I am stoked for what God has for us today. Jesus, as we take a few minutes to be in your word, we ask, Lord, that nothing would get in the way, that you would clear away every mental, emotional, and physical boundary and blockade and distraction between your heart and our heart. God, whatever it is that we put between ourselves and you, the different idols and comforts and distractions that, that stick with us close to our hearts day in and day out, that we, we use that, that create barriers and, and create a, a fog between us and you, God, today we ask that you would cut through those things, even, even supernaturally, Spirit, we ask that you would give us clear heads right now. That we have open eyes and open ears. That we would hear from you. Hear from you clearly. And that our hearts would be moldable and open to respond to what you tell us. God, we love you. We trust you. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. I wasn't joking, this is the longest text we're going to read in all of Acts, so uh, you buckle up. Um, we're going to start in Acts 7, verse 1, but we're actually jumping in, if you recall, into the middle of a narrative. So, so really quickly to catch us up, remember, the, the apostles appointed the seven to meet this administrative need within the church, and, and out of those people, this guy Stephen was kind of singled out as kind of an exemplar of the, the kind of man that was stepping up to serve the church in this season. And we were, were told this man was just, just 
full of Jesus, and that his ministry didn't end with just benevolence ministry and waiting tables, but that he actually went out and was boldly proclaiming the gospel and performing signs and miracles just like the apostles. And that, that escalated into this conflict where, where some men in his local synagogue began arguing back and forth with him, and they, and they couldn't defeat him by arguments, right? And so it ends up escalating into this mock trial where he's drugged before the Sanhedrin, which is at this point just a familiar story, right? with these false charges of blasphemy brought against him. And, and the whole story echoes what we've already seen of Peter and what we've already seen of Jesus, where he's, he's standing before this same Sanhedrin and this same high priest who have said these things to Jesus and said them to Peter and said them to John and said them to all the apostles, and now they're saying them to this guy. And you can just really tell in our text that at this point, these guys are just done with this. They're like, this is, this is the last time we're having this same argument about this theological movement that we don't approve of. And so they bring all these charges against him, and our story picks up in that moment where the false charges have been brought against Stephen. So picking up in the first verse of the seventh chapter of Acts, we read this. And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen responded, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran, and after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. And he gave him no inheritance in it, not, not even a foot's length, but rather a promise to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him a covenant, the covenant of circumcision. So Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Then there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and a great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers in their first visit. Then on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob and his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died. He and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had brought for, bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. But it's the time of the promise grew near. When God had granted to Abraham, the, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. And he dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so they should not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born. And he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, 
Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and his deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he had defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand and the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? You want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. As he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals from your feet, from the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning. I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their own hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness of the house of Israel? You took up the tent of Molech and the star of your God, wrapped in the images that you made to worship. And I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers, they had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the very days of David. They found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. For as the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? And what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your father you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? 
And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth in him. But he was full of the Holy Spirit and gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears. They rushed together at him and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And this, beloved, is the word of the Lord. Oof. I told you guys it's a long one. It's the longest single text or, or single piece of discourse in all of Acts. It's a doozy. So what are we going to do with this in the few minutes I have? I'd like to walk through really just two things with us today. I want to make sure we're aware of the, the narrative that is actually advancing here in the overall Acts story. I want you guys to see that. But really, secondly, we're, we're going to look at the actual content of Stephen's sermon. And what we're going to see in this sermon and this narrative is that they actually point us to the same unified and wonderful truth. And that is the invitation of a gracious and generous God. This will lead us into some, some, some quick teaching from the prophet Isaiah. And then we're going to take communion and we're just going to worship for a little bit. Sound good? Awesome. We're about to be clearly reminded of the goodness of our God and the seriousness of the gospel invitation. And I want you guys to hear this. The stakes of the gospel are very high. God made you and me, all people, for abundant eternal life from the here and now all the way to the sweet by and by. But our sin and the reality of the curse have separated us from this design with disastrous results. But praise be to God that he is inviting us into life and freedom and redemption and forgiveness in him. Beloved, hear this. Hear this. You do not have to be stiff-necked and hard of heart. You don't. You can have freedom in Christ. You can have salvation in Christ. If you desire Jesus, you can have him. What an amazing invitation. What a gospel. If you desire him, he is yours. So look at the actual narrative with me, and I'm going I'm to fly through this part. Remember, the pressure has been, been building on the church since almost immediately after Jesus resurrected. This, is, this has been this back and forth where, where first Peter and John get arrested and threatened by the Sanhedrin, don't do this. And then the apostles get arrested and threatened by the Sanhedrin, don't do this. And then they whip them and beat them. And each time they just respond by going, no, we're going to keep doing this. And they keep preaching the gospel and people are getting saved by the thousands 
And, and it escalates, and now Stephen has been arrested for preaching the same gospel and doing miracles, and they have worked up this mockery of a trial, and they're making all these false accusations, and our text opens with the leader of the Sanhedrin, the high priest, asking this simple question, are these things so? Now, I want to pause us here for a second. I want you to genuinely reflect on this for a moment. This is the same Sanhedrin that falsely arrested and killed Jesus and, and, and falsely beat the apostles. They know full well these things aren't so. These are the same false charges that they themselves paid dishonest witnesses to make against Jesus. They literally know these things are not so. But you would hear this, guys. At this point, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, the religious establishment, they're not actually concerned with the truth. They're concerned with getting rid of this dangerous, what they view as a cult within their faith that they see as the way of Jesus. They're no longer asking the question, is Jesus' teaching true? Is he the Messiah? They're only asking, how do we rid ourselves of this? They're so blind to their own reality, to what God is actually doing in their midst. They have no clue how badly they're missing it. You can imagine the envision the, the chief priest asking Stephen, are these things so, when really what he's asking is, are you going to give me fodder to kill you? Because that would be convenient. And Stephen has no problem giving him plenty of fodder. Rather than even responding to the charges, Stephen just lets out this blistering sermon. He digs into a biblical theology of God's invitation in humanity's stubborn rejection of the graciousness of God. He accuses the religious leaders of being stiff-necked, blind to their own spiritual state, and places the blame for Jesus' death squarely on their shoulders. And what we see is that they fly into a rage. Now remember, this court has no authority to put anyone to death. This is not the actual legal law of Jerusalem. Rome is. This is why they took Jesus to Pilate. But in this moment, they're so done with this movement. They're drawn into such emotion and such rage that they go, we are going to kill this guy right now. We're done with this. And the religious leaders of, of Israel, God's shepherds to his people, drag one of his anointed, one of his prophets outside and stone him to death. And I want you to hear that. The way they did this in that day is you would get the person outside the town and up high and you would drop him, either off the city walls or off a cliff. And when they fell and they were injured from the impact, they would then heap stones upon them to give them their own burial pile. We're talking like watermelon-sized stones that they were like, heaving from 15, 20, 30 feet up in the air. So they take Stephen outside the town and they throw him off a cliff and they're actively dropping stones upon him and he is in the midst of dying. And we see this, this, this wretchedly beautiful haunting scene in this, this insane contrast where as Stephen is dying, he's praying forgiveness over his enemies. He's praying grace over them. He's, he's meeting with Jesus. 
And up on top of the hill, there's this young rabbi named Saul, who's too smart politically to partake in the illegal murder. So instead, he stands and holds coats and gives his approval. And what we're supposed to see in the text is that that even though Saul didn't throw a stone, his presence, his actions are complete participation and culpability. As he engages in this illegal execution. And we're left with this scene where God graciously draws Stephen to sleep in the midst of his death. And he closes his eyes and opens them in the presence of Jesus and hears, well done, good and faithful servant. As his enemies, who should be his shepherds, who should be his leaders, who should be running to the feet of Jesus, plot and scheme and kill him. It's such a tragic scene. Because those who have every excuse to know what God is doing are completely blind to him. And they actively oppose him and reject him. And look at the content of the sermon. I I love this sermon. If for no other reason than to convict me for how, how poorly I actually know my Bible, right? This dude lays out a biblical theology off the cuff. I mean, I would actually, I'm not joking when I say this. I would encourage you guys to go through Stephen's sermon and on a piece of paper in your journal on the margin, write Google and write down every single Bible verse he references and watch him take you literally from Genesis 12 through Isaiah and Jeremiah from from the top of the old dome. And he walks through this biblical theology, starting with the patriarchs. Here's the way God made promises to Abraham. And here's the way God made promises to the patriarchs. And here's the way God made promises to Israel in bondage. And here's the way God made promises to Israel, the nation. And here's the way God spoke to his dispossessed people. He's he's framing this entire narrative over the course of multiple generations. And here's the way God made generous promises and gave wonderful gifts. And then spoke hope and life into his people. Here's a survey of God's generous invitations. And then he puts those next to the absolute, absolute hard-hearted rejection of God's people. Who operate in jealousy and anger and violence and rejection and miss what he does. And you see this this narrative where, where God's sovereignty superimposes over the violence and sin and anger and jealousy of his people to, to continue his plan and continue his generosity and continue the work he's doing. But constantly, God is working in spite of his people. And he brings this all together by saying, I'm not terribly surprised that you guys are as terrible as you are because you're acting just like our ancestors. Which, by the way, if you've been brought up on false charges, not a terribly good way to ingratiate yourself to your accusers. But this is what Stephen does. He lays out their story as a people and says, I'm not even surprised because this is what we have done for generations. God meets us with love and generosity and invitation, and we respond with hard hearts and stiff necks. 
You are just like our fathers. I mean, that accusation. Is it any wonder they fly into a rage? Guys, for as long as God has been consistently loving and inviting and blessing his people, his people have been missing it. I want you to hear that. That's, that's, the, that's the crux of Stephen's sermon. For as long as God has been offering his loving, wonderful generosity, his people have been completely missing it. They've been spiritually blind. They've allowed things like jealousy, bitterness, anger, pride, sorrow to keep them from God's good invitations. The story of the whole Old Testament is the story of a good God inviting his people into blessing and life and continually most of his people miss him. Truly, Jesus spoke when he said the kingdom, the way to the kingdom is narrow and few people find it. Paul would later articulate the same idea by saying that humanity is dead in our transgressions. We're unable. We're stuck. And we need God's help to even receive God's blessing. And this, beloved of Jesus, is the crux of Stephen's sermon. It's the crux of this narrative. And it's what we need to sit with today. You and I are no different than our fathers. We are stiff-necked. We are We're sinful. We're so often blind and rebellious. It's so easy in our day-to-day lives to miss out on God's good invitation to life and to freedom. But you don't have to. You don't have to. You don't have to be blind and prideful and stiff-necked. We don't have to miss out. Beloved, Jesus has made the way from death to life, from lost to found, from blind to seeing. Jesus has made a way, and all we need do is call upon his mercy and his forgiveness. And you know what he does? He opens our eyes. He cleans our hearts. He forgives our sins. He makes us new. Beloved, this is the invitation of the gospel. And I want you to hear this because I fear that some of you who've been in Christ and been in the church for a long time, you're hearing that and go, yeah, Pastor Sam, that's such an awful gospel invitation. I hope some people who aren't in Christ hear that. But beloved, this invitation is for you as well. You can be fully in Christ and have received salvation and yet ignore his calls to you day by day. As you walk through your job and your marriage and your relationships. This call is for you right now. You don't have to miss out on God's good kingdom blessings. You can be a part of the king, part of the kingdom. All you must do, all you must do is humbly admit your state. Humbly admit your state. You are a blind, dead, sinful person in desperate need. So come to Jesus and you will have him. Come to Christ and you have him. The invitation is there. Look how these folk respond. They're so stiff-necked. 
They're so entrenched. They cannot move beyond their stiffed neckness. They're stuck in their sin and their pride. And so they respond in a blind, jealous, violent rage, the same as their forefathers. They miss God's good invitation right in front of them and they kill God's messenger. So sorrowful. They totally miss the goodness of God right in front of them. So, I'm going to end us out. <laughs> You're like, I thought you said we were going to have like a happy ending to this. This is pretty intense. Because it has to be intense. Because the stakes of the gospel are high. Stakes of the gospel are high. God built you for eternity. He built you to last. And you've been corrupted and broken by sin. And it is only through Christ, only through his grace, only through his presence, only through his forgiveness that you have any plan in front of you aside from the wrath of a justice God, a just God. It's the only, the only path away from that is the grace of Jesus. So here's how I want to do this. I want to invite us to do two different things. I want to invite us to reflect I think we need to, if we're going to take this seriously, soberly reflect for a moment. But then I want to invite us to just celebrate. And here's what I mean by that. I must, I, I must ask this. Are you in Christ? You must reflect on that truth. This is not something that happens by osmosis. Are you, are you in Christ? Have you, have you submitted your heart to him? Have you confessed your state before him? Have you allowed him to speak life and truth and forgiveness into your heart? If you, if you come to him for forgiveness and freedom, I mean, I, I, mean, I, I want you, like I want all of us. I don't care if you've been in church for 50 years. I want you to reflect on that. If that reflection takes two seconds and the spirit goes, yes, you are mine. Oh, praise be to God. Because what I would like for us to do is to get to a place where we realize we don't have to be stiff-necked. We don't have to miss out. Our God is so good, he made a way for us from death to life. And the only response to that kind of generosity and that kind of love and that kind of goodness is to rejoice. It's to praise him because he has done so much for us. So here's what I'm going to do. We're going to take communion in just a second. But before we do, I'm going to read us a verse from the prophet Isaiah who was speaking to God's people who were operating in this same stiff-necked rebellion and receiving the just punishment of their actions. And God was speaking hope over them, saying, this doesn't have to be your forever. You can actually turn to me and find life. I want you guys to hear this. And then and here's, here's all I'm going to do. I'm going to invite the band to come up. As I, as I read this text, I'm going to say a quick prayer over us. Give us just, just a minute to sit in this. A minute for you to reflect, a minute for you to honestly ask yourself the question, am I in Christ? And if you need to work through that, if God's doing something in your heart, please, 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 talk to me or Craig. We'd love to talk to you about that. If you're watching this at home, man, shoot us an email, shoot us a text. We'd love to engage you. I'm going to let us sit there for just a minute. And then I'm going to invite us to worship through taking communion. Because when we take the elements, 
We're proclaiming the sufficiency of the gospel. We're proclaiming the generosity, the invitation, the goodness of our God. We're going we're gonna to do that together. And then we're just going to spend the rest of our time praising our good, generous God. Sound good? All right. Take a minute and pray with me. Jesus, you are so good. Too good to us. Too good to me. Jesus, for anyone in this space that is not found in you, I pray that you would open their eyes and their hearts to the mortal peril of their soul. That they would not have peace apart from you. And I know that's a brutal thing to pray because I desire joy and peace for everyone here. But God, I pray that you would not let us get away from the truth of our need of you. God, I pray that you would do that even today. That you would rapture hearts from death to life even now. God, for those of us who who are not in you, I pray that you would give us that conviction. For those of us who are in you, I pray that you would give us the beautiful peace and satisfaction of your presence and your pleasure with us. And we might respond. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear. Come to me here that your soul may live. For I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, my sure love, the love I had for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader, a commander for peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know. A nation that you did not know shall have to run to you the Lord your God, because the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. Hear this, church. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Beloved, He can be found. He is near. Let the wicked forsake His wicked ways. Let the unrighteous man forsake His thoughts. Let them return to the Lord, for He will have compassion. He will abundantly Seek him while he may be found. He may be found right here, right now. For those of you who are in Christ and you want to, with me, transition to a time of celebration, I invite you to grab your elements. Because our God is so good. Our God 
has given us an abundant pardon, has had compassion on us, has made a way for us from death to life. Our God is so good. That's why he gave us this meal. When he broke the bread, he said, this is my body, broken for you, beloved, take me. Pass the cup. He said, This is my blood poured out for you, the blood of the new covenant. Beloved, take and drink of the covenant of grace. I don't know about you guys. I just want to sing some songs to Jesus for a few minutes. Can we do that? Let's do it.